Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Today is the day you have made. I will rejoice and be glad in your best friend in the faith. We have been touching on friendship and talking about friendship from time to time this week here on Mornings with Carmen. We have another conversation about that up next with Bill English. We're going to talk about the relationship of Jonathan and David. Unique, unique friendship and and yet a friendship from which we can learn a great deal. And so um, I want to I want to pause and I want to acknowledge the necessity of friendship, um, the calling of friendship. I want to acknowledge uh, the friendship that we have uh, with God restored in the person of Jesus Christ. Like we were once at enmity with the Father, but God um, made it possible through his Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, that that enmity would be destroyed and that we would be able to walk in fellowship again with the Father. And so when we look in in the Bible and we see those people who are described as friend of God, right? David is described as a man after God's own heart. Was David perfect? Certainly not. Uh, In fact, horribly imperfect in so many ways. And yet um, God recognized that David's heart beat for the heart of God. And Jonathan recognized that as well. And so when we recognize in other people that they are God's people, when we recognize that somebody is uh, is a person whose heart is after the Father, a person who desires to honor God, a person who desires to uh, make the name of God famous, extend grace to more and more people, uh, take back territory that the enemy thinks he owns. I don't know about you, but those are people that I want to cultivate friendships with. And the cultivation of friendship, I think, is really difficult. I think that it's harder to make a friend, particularly when you're an adult, Um I think it's hard to make a friend. And so, you know, I can't pass a note anymore that's like, will you be my friend, which is what I might have done in the third grade. Um, I only remember one person ever rejecting that, and her name was Robin in the fifth grade, and I I, die. I still don't like her, right? But um, but there were a number of friends, uh, Lori and Ashley and, and others who I like, I distinctively remember positively receiving the will you be my friend note. I'm wondering today if if you want to make a friend like how are you going about doing that and maybe it's an act of service of a person um you know maybe it starts with an act of service maybe it starts with uh just simply initiating uh with a phone call or an email and saying hey can we get together for coffee or lunch and and then there's that follow-up and i just admit that's the part i'm really poor at um because i tend to let life like overwhelm and then we get isolated and then we wonder why we don't have friends so there you go it's a little personal uh insight there um, into what's going on in Carmen's heart and mind as we turn to looking at the life of Jonathan and David and their relationship, specifically the relationship of Jonathan and David, um, and what we can learn from Jonathan's relationship with David in terms of our own leadership in our own Christian businesses, organizations, and families. So that's up next here with Bill English from BibleAndBusiness.com. I can't 
We are in an ongoing conversation with Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com about the leadership lessons we can learn from the life of David. And so we find ourselves in the correspondence of Samuel in the Old Testament. And today we arrive at the relationship of Jonathan and David. Bill, welcome back. Hey, thank you. It's good to be back. So last week, um, I I asked if we could talk a little bit about Jonathan and David, and you very graciously um, agreed to do that. And so what did you learn this week about Jonathan, the name, and Jonathan, the person? Well, Jonathan, the name, uh, the Hebrew name, and I won't try to say it, uh, really says, means Yahweh has given. It's a, it's a concatenation, actually, between the word Yahweh and another root word in Hebrew, which means to give. So Jonathan means uh, Yahweh has given, which I thought was interesting. I, I didn't know that until I did the study. So we know that Jonathan is the firstborn son of King Saul, and mm-hmm. that makes him, you know, that makes him the heir apparent to the throne. But that is, he's not, he doesn't then become king. No, he doesn't. And and the, the surprising part, if, if you read the Jonathan narratives in 1 Samuel, uh, he's okay with that. Right. You know, I mean, normally when you grow up and you know something is rightfully yours in the future and then it gets taken away, you're going to be bitter about that, especially if it's a kingship, for heaven's sakes. Uh, Here, he's he seems to be okay with it. And it's not that um, that Jonathan was weak or that he was not capable of leading or not capable of uh, of fighting. I mean, he he is one of the commanders of Saul's army. Yeah, and he's he's actually quite a talented guy. And as I was driving in this morning and thinking about our spot this morning, it, it dawned on me that Jonathan had uh, a number of the same qualities as David. You know, they really shared a lot of the same qualities. They both had leadership. They both were brave. They both could be uh, a lead a group into battle and be successful. And they both loved the Lord and were submitted to him. When When you look at that, Jonathan and David shared an awful lot in common, and maybe that's why they were such good friends. I do think that, you know, there's there's a lesson there for us. It is hard to be the friend of someone who is so utterly different that we just don't have any points of connection. And so these two guys were um, had had similar gift sets and actually some similar experiences. They were um, they were both good in battle. They were both strategic in their thinking. Um, they were both very, very capable, and so there was a there was a level playing field in terms of their friendship. There, this was not a, a an over under kind of relationship. This was definitely um, a side by side kind of relationship. And Jonathan even describes um, with really intimate terms uh, the way he feels about his friend David. Well, that's, yeah, in in 1 Samuel 18, 1, Jonathan uses this word uh, literally to become one is how it's translated in the English. Uh, and But the Hebrew word really means to be tied together, right? It, it's a phrase used to describe also the pledge that Judah made to protect Benjamin back in Genesis forty four thirty. So Jonathan is said to have, to have loved David as his own soul and... Uh, and that that love is not a, a sexual love. It's not a homoerotic love. It is a friendship, brotherly love that they have between them. And I think it existed in part, like like, like we've just said, because they were so similar in so many uh, ways. 
And Jonathan, in recognizing that David is uh, God's anointed and he is not, even though Jonathan, you know, like according to the way we think that kingdoms work, Jonathan is the heir apparent. He should be the next king. But he somehow recognizes that, nope, David is God's anointed. And um, and I am going to serve this one whom God has lifted up. And in doing that, Jonathan uh, gives David his royal robe, his armor, his sword, his bow. Uh, I mean, First Samuel eighteen verses one through four. Just, I mean, it's it's a it's an amazing act of of recognizing that David is the guy, and Jonathan is subordinating himself to that. And I don't think Jonathan can do that without first having subordinated himself to the Lord, to God Himself. It, it, it just now the, the the text doesn't come out and say that, right? But it just seems to me that you're not going to give up that which is rightfully yours unless you first know that that's what God wants you to do and that you are really being faithful to God. So to me, those those first four verses in Samuel 18, 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 4, those, those verses really indicate a heart within Jonathan that is submissive to God and therefore can be submissive to a human authority uh, on earth that God chooses. And isn't that really what we want in all of our leaders, right? Don't we want leaders who first know how to submit, not just leaders who know how to fight, not just leaders who know how to get out in front, gin up their bases, get their bases mad, get everybody on their side and go defeat the other side. I would like a leader who first knows how to submit him or herself to God and then knows how to submit to other authorities that are rightly ordained here on earth. Yeah, and in no small measure, because we all want to arrive together, not with just half the group. Right. Absolutely. All right. So uh, Bill English and I are going to take a quick break, and then we will be right back. uh, More on the leadership lessons from the life of King David, focusing today on Jonathan. We're going to look at the covenants that Jonathan and David make, and we're also going to look at Jonathan's efforts to uh, to bring peace where there is no peace and the lessons that we can learn from that in our own lives. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. I can be your friend. I can be your friend. Any day in any <laughs> That would be Paul Perot's bringing a little humor to the morning oh, come show. On. We're so glad you're back, Paul. Thank oh, you're you. welcome. He does the veggie tales well, doesn't he? Oh, dear. He does. He hey, I feel like we're having the Veggie Tales guy on. Are we not to talk about like new books and stuff? Uh, Is that no, happening? Phil, Vig- right, we got to no. work on that. Okay, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. He actually yeah. wrote a really interesting book about the mistakes he made. Oh yeah. In in his in his business, I I read it, learned from it. Oh uh, yeah. Very transparent. It, it was interesting actually because I remember a seminar when he was at the height, right before the Jonah movie and everything, and right. all his plans. He he wanted to have the Christian Disney. Right. And he, right, right, I mean, right. he he had big plans. But they weren't God's plans, and no. oh, the humbling and the, what he's learned in that has been amazing. Yeah, I've, yeah. So I think they're coming back. Like I think that oh, the yeah, veggie, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, we're going to have to circle back around okay. to that. Okay, that's not today's subject. Okay, I'm sorry. so sorry. It's that's what real conversation looks like when something leaps into the mind and suddenly it is out the mouth. Okay, um, Bill English is here. <laughs> we are officially. <laughs> That we are too much. officially so talking. Inside I know. words and outside words, yes, right? They're okay. supposed to be. So we're officially talking today about David and Jonathan. Um, David and Jonathan make uh, at least three different covenants with each other, and the yeah. one fulfilled in um, 
uh, in David's ultimate actions toward uh, Mephibosheth is my favorite. And I just like to say yeah. Mephibosheth. And so there you go. Um, so what are the three covenants that are, well, the three that we're going to talk about today um, uh, in terms of the relationship of Jonathan and David? Well, the, the the first covenant is one of friendship, I think. Right after uh, David kills Goliath, Jonathan and David make that covenant, right? And that's where Jonathan is giving David uh, really his support, his loyalty, and he is recognizing to David so that David knows that Jonathan understands that David is going to be the next king. I think that's the first one. The second one is they make it in, in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel. And there, uh, Jonathan makes David swear to show kindness to his descendants. And that's what you're referring to there with, with uh, me, I don't know how to say Mephibosheth. that. Mephibosheth. 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 It's fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, apparently he had lame feet of some sort and wasn't able to walk. If, if I remember correctly. And mm-hmm. um, uh, so that's the second covenant. The third one is that uh, that they would remember each other and be loyal to each other when David is fleeing from Saul in the wilderness of Ziph. Okay, that's in 1 Samuel 23. And so it's, it's uh, really one covenant about, I am submitting to you because you are God's anointed. The second one is, since you're God's anointed, please be kind to my family because you now have power over my family. And the third one is, you and I have been friends all these years. Let's remember our friendship and let's not let it go, even though we may not see each other for a long time. So um, the the covenant of friendship or the covenants of friendship, I don't think that that is language that we use very often today. And I certainly don't I certainly don't think that this like uh, subordination of a person who really has all the gifts, talents and abilities necessary for leadership and even the positional authority to seize leadership. So I'm talking here about Jonathan. I don't think that we often think about those kinds of leaders in the context of organizations today. Um, I don't think we think about them leading well. Like, how do you lead well from the second chair or how do you lead well from the second position? But Jonathan really shows how you uh, how you be how you can be a real friend, a person of real strength, a person of real courage and capacity, and be in subord in appropriate subordination to the real leader, God's anointed, the person in the first chair. Number twos often have the same skill set or a similar skill set as the number ones in an organization. Okay, and a good number one will always try to find a really great number two. And that's what Jonathan turns out to be. If you look at it from a business angle, he really is David's number two. And he knows how to push David along. Now, Jonathan dies before David is uh, becomes king. You know, him and Saul are killed by the Philistines on Mount Goboah. And that's what ushers David in to be anointed as king, at least in Judah and then seven or in Hebron and then seven years later up in Israel. And so you have this you have this situation where Jonathan literally has to die in order for David to become king. He understands David's role. He understands his own role. And he uh, really moves David forward in some very significant ways. So um, there's a there's an age difference between these guys. So I think we tend to think of them as contemporaries or peers. But Jonathan is definitely uh, older. Yes. Um, maybe significantly so. And that's an interesting conversation as well, right? Like uh, the other interesting conversation here, I think, is this this loyalty. Um, and I'd love to circle back around to this. Maybe maybe we actually just hit what are what are maybe 
three or four leadership lessons that we learn, um, lessons from Jonathan that you think are just immediately applicable. And I know that one of those is going to be this conversation about submission. Yeah, it is. Uh, Jonathan is loyal to David because of his love and submission to God. So uh, that's that's one of the things. We're, we're never going to be a good Jonathan. There's a lot of Jonathans out there right now. You're never going to be a good Jonathan if you're not submitted to God. I think another one is you have to accept the role that God has for you on his team, right? God has a team, and he has teams in churches and in businesses and nonprofits, and uh, you just need to accept your role in the team even though you think you want to do something great. I, I know of a guy uh, that was standing outside our church doors not too many Sundays ago, and he was he was saying to another one of my friends, I really want to do great things for God. I want to do big things for God. And I'm and I'm, I'm kind of sitting there going, but you need to understand your role on the team. What is God's role for you, right? And so you, you need to understand that. Um, but I think also num- great number twos have to be able to demonstrate and use their own leadership skills to support the core leader in the organization. And one that we probably don't have time to talk about is how Jonathan resolved conflict twice, really, between Saul and David to help keep God's plan moving forward. Otherwise, Saul was going to kill David. Jonathan didn't want that to happen. And so Jonathan inserts himself in order to keep that God's plan moving forward. And some of that involves bows and arrows and leaping over walls, and it's all very exciting. And we think that you should read... um, First and Second Samuel, and in particular, you should uh, you should spend some time uh, in the story of Jonathan and David today. How, how's that for a promo oh, for the Bible? I love it. I you know, love Bible it. promo. Hey, Bill, it's always fun to talk with you. Thank you, yeah, uh, thank you that we we get to have these conversations week to week about all of the lessons that we can learn from the life of David. You guys can check all of this out at BibleandBusiness.com. We'll be right back. Where are you in the Word today? That's actually the question that I have taped up on my wall in here. Uh, Here are some other questions I have for you today. Um, What part of the culture garden are you cultivating today? What rocks are you removing? What soil are you tilling? What seeds are you planting? Are you sowing seeds of peace? Are you seeking to cultivate a harvest of righteousness uh, unto the glory of the Lord our God? So these are, um, and then maybe I should just ask this, what questions are on your wall? Like, what do you live with in front of you uh, continually? Okay, uh, that has nothing to do with my next conversation. But my next conversation is with Bill Federer. You guys love him. So we had him on. You responded really positively. And so I thought, "Mm, let's have him back. You can find him at AmericanMinute.com. Bill is going to come and talk today um, about the anniversary of the Second Great Awakening. We're also going to talk about revival. All right, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Getting a shot at the doctor's office or having blood drawn for a test might hurt, but it's for your own good. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Most parents believe that pain and discomfort should be avoided at all costs. However, pain is often the perfect remedy for misbehaving teens. See, teens will continue making poor choices and bad decisions 
until the resulting pain is greater than the pleasure derived from their behavior. And by preventing your child from feeling the pain of their mistakes, you might just be enabling them to continue down that destructive path. Are you trying to shelter your teen from pain and discomfort? Mom, Dad, let them experience the consequences of their actions. It's for their own good. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. So joining me now is Bill Federer. Uh, you know him from American Minute. You may also know him from reading one of the many books that he has written, Who is the King in America and Who are the Counselors to the King, is one of my current uh, current favorites. Bill, welcome back. It's great to be with you. Okay, so we are talking today about something that happened on August the 7th in 1801. What was that? Right. It was a camp meeting. And so uh, after America becomes independent, uh, we have a second great awakening revival that sweeps the country. And it is um, oh, happens on the East Coast in the universities and then in the mountains in Kentucky. And so there is a pastor in Kentucky named James McReady, and he has his church. Uh, pray uh, every Saturday. He has the the men of his church fast and pray for that that God would revive his work. And so what happens is there is uh, a meeting where 500 people show up. The next year, uh, 1,500 people show up. The next year, uh, 8,000. The next year, 15,000. The next year, 20,000. The next year, 25,000 people show up in the Kentucky woods and it's a prayer meeting and uh, it's uh, Methodists and Baptists and Presbyterians and different preachers. And uh, the uh, enthusiasm uh, begins to sweep the country. And then some of the firsthand accounts of people that attended these camp meetings uh, talk about how they would have platforms built and every 30 yards, another platform, and then another 30 yards, another platform. And, there would all be all these platforms and the preachers would be preaching at the same time. And so you would come across one group and they would be on their knees, uh, repenting. You'd come across another group and they would have their hands lifted in prayer and there'd be rejoicing and, uh, there'd be tears. And, uh, it's, it was just exciting. And they would say that it was more than just, uh, emotion because the, uh, participants could give a rational explanation of their conversion afterwards. And um, so it was one of these amazing uh, situations that uh, impacted the nation. And so even uh, Abraham Lincoln's parents uh, went to one of the camp meetings and Thomas Jefferson's daughter uh, uh, went to one of these camp meetings. And uh, again, it was sweeping the country. And uh, it caused there to be a revival of enormous proportions. Um, Now, on the East Coast, it uh, occurred in the universities. And so you had Yale and there was French infidelity. So we have a revolution. France has a revolution. 
we had a Great Awakening revival prior to our revolution. France had Voltaire, who was an atheist, who ridiculed Christianity. And so the French Revolution turned into a bloodbath. They chopped off 40,000 heads on the streets of Paris, and they killed 300,000 in the Vendee. So France was obviously quite different uh, than what was happening in America. Well, during this time, French infidelity, uh, the Jacobins, the anarchists, this this uh, immoral thought comes across and it filters into the campuses on American universities. It became an in thing to be secular, to be uh, non-religious, to be an atheist on the campuses. And so Yale president Timothy Dwight, whose grandfather was the first Great Awakening preacher, Jonathan Edwards, but Timothy Dwight. Uh, he's president of the university. Well, he sits down at lunchtime at the, in the cafeteria with the students, and he listens to all of their uh, arguments and explanations, and he quietly listens. And then one by one, he answers every one of their um, arguments uh, reasonably and convincingly and converts these kids back to believing in Christ. It starts a revival on Yale campus. Uh, his son, Sereno Edwards Dwight, said from that moment, infidelity was not only without a stronghold, but without a lurking place. Another student said the whole college was shaken. It seemed for a time as if the whole mass of students would press into the kingdom. It was the Lord's doing and marvelous in our eyes. Uh, another uh, Yale uh, tutor said Yale College has become a little temple. Prayer and praise seem to be the delight everywhere. Well, what happened next? Uh, there are some students going on a, a, a walk across a farm, and there's a haystack, and they, the dumps rain, so they dive into the haystack, and they're praying and for world missions, and they commit their lives to world missions, and they start a, a world missionary movement. And out of that haystack prayer meeting, missionaries are sent to the Caribbean, to Burma, to China, to Hawaii, all around the world. Uh, this Second Great Awakening continues with the American Bible Society being formed. Uh, new denominations, uh, Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, uh, Seventh-day Adventists, and so forth. And, and millennialism. Now, what's that? That's not millennials. <laughs> um, that's the uh, expectation of the return of Christ. And it sweeps the country. And they uh, are all anticipating the, the soon return of Jesus. And this actually lends itself to the beginning of the Zionist movement. And so you had preachers saying, well, one of the things that needs to take place is for the Jews to resettle the Holy Land. And so they would actually tell Jews, you need to go back to the Holy Land and, um, and help start this, uh, you know, end time revival. Well, there's prison reform. There's hospitals being formed. And there's the abolitionist movement. So the abolitionist movement came out of the Second Great Awakening revival. And one of the go ahead. Well, I just think, Bill, that so as you're as you are saying these things, as you are recounting this history, I hope that one of the things that people are hearing is just how similar the days in which we live are to the days just prior to and throughout the Second Great Awakening. Like there's a reason a Great Awakening was necessary. America was not in a good place, and Americans were not um, living 
lives reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And we, there's a reason that we needed prison reform. There's a reason that we needed abolition, because we were not a people who were living in ways aligned with the Lord. And so when we talk about a culture being ripe for revival, when we talk about um, you know, standing on the edge of a time when God might see fit again to send another great awakening. I feel like we are living in those days. Well, I do too. And it's interesting. There was several international political things that were war related. So you had a threatened war with France and the president is John Adams and he has a national day of fasting and prayer, right? We just finished a war with the most powerful nation, Britain. And now we're on the verge of a war with the second biggest global power, France. And so the president has a day of fasting. And then you have the Barbary Pirate Wars. Lo and behold, ships of ours would be taken captive by the Muslims and the crews were sold into slavery in North Africa. And so the day after Thomas Jefferson gets inaugurated, the third president, he gets a demand for a quarter of a million dollars extortion tribute payment from the Pasha of Tripoli. And he said, I did the only reasonable thing. I sent in a squadron of our ships. And so we had to fight two wars with the Muslim Barbary pirates. Um, And then uh, you have uh, once uh, Napoleon. So you have the French Revolution in France. They chop off the heads. Napoleon takes power. And he has this huge empire. And then it turns into this battle of the English and the Prussians against Napoleon, the Battle of Waterloo. And Napoleon is finally defeated, which is good on one hand. But on the other hand, now Britain is freed up to have its army and navy attack America. So it's called Mm -hmm. the War of 1812 uh, during this time. It actually goes on for several years. Uh, but during this time, the British invade our capital and burn the White House mm-hmm. uh, in, 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 you know, 1814. And you have a battle of Lake Erie and the battle of New Orleans and the British are inciting Indians on the frontiers like like Fort Mims, Alabama, uh, where uh, the, the British gave him gun, gave the Indians guns and uh, told them they'd pay them for scalps. And so the Indians scalp 500 people in Fort Mims, Alabama. And so we have, in other words, foreign powers are stirring up mm-hmm. <laughs> internal crisis and division and terrorism taking place. And, so, um, Bill, you and I have to take we got to take a brief break. But I, those parallels to today, um, hopefully people are hearing and recognizing. Um, and when we come back, we're going to talk more about the Second Great Awakening. We are actually uh, on the anniversary of the Cane Ridge Revival uh, today. And so Bill Federer is here Uh, to talk with us about that. And just remember that you can always find him at American Minute. We'll be right back. Talking today with Bill Federer about um, the second great awakening here in the United States of America. We are doing so today on August the 7th because this is the anniversary of the Cane Ridge Revival in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, which actually went went on for a, a fairly long period of time. But we are talking about something that took place, you know, 200 years ago. And so what's happening today, and I just want, for those of you that are texting in and saying, how could I participate today in uh, in inviting God to send such a revival and then be prepared to uh, to be moved into such a thing? Well, there's actually a group called the Christian Union 
that is uh, inviting each and every one of us to participate in a 21-day fast, prayer and fasting, for revival in America, and it actually starts on August the 12th. So if you want to check that out, you can go to dayandnight.org, dayandnight.org, um, and you know, look at what it would be like to join fellow Christians across America in a 21-day uh, fast to follow the example of the men and women, um, not only of Scripture, but of our own country, who would put themselves on their faces before the Lord, um, seeking his sp- seeking spiritual revival in the land. So, uh, Bill, um, let's uh, let's circle back into the conversation where we left off. So, what was happening globally was not unlike what's happening globally today. What was happening here in the nation was not unlike what's happening in the nation today, and the needs were similar as well. There was a need for a spiritual awakening in order that social issues could also be addressed. So do you see some of those parallels? I I do, definitely. And um, James Madison had a day of fasting and prayer when the British burned the White House. Here's the president of the United States, and he does it twice in 1798, 1799. And then uh, toward the end, in the 1840s, we had a cholera epidemic sweep the country. And President Zachary Taylor had a day of fasting and prayer. Now, a couple things that started during this time that went on to even be impacting us today is the Salvation Army, right? Hmm. So uh, you had a preacher uh, in uh, New York named um, Charles Finney, and he was an attorney, and he was— uh, taking the the case for uh, like a church deacon who was suing another church member, and uh, he uh, has this urge to go out and pray, and so he goes into the woods and he says, "I'm going to stay here until you meet me, God." And so he like prays for hours and hours and hours, and um, and he said that uh, he felt the presence of the Lord like waves of liquid love and. And he goes back into his office in town and he locks himself in his office and he like prays all night long. And before you know it, it's morning time and someone comes into the law office and it's the deacon suing the other church member. And he says, how's my case coming along? And Charles Finney said, you'll have to get another lawyer. I've been (laughs) retained by a higher higher power. Uh, And so he goes on to become a preacher. And he's very convicting. He says, look, being a Christian is more than just visiting church uh, once a week. He said, you have to have your life change and you have to have fruits of it. And so these uh, messages uh, were heard by a guy named George Williams over in England. And he starts the YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association. And George Williams says, I know of no way uh, other to change a man's life than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and so he starts the YMCA. And then William Booth starts the, um, and his wife, uh, Catherine Booth, they start the Salvation Army. Uh, they're in England. They first call it the, um, uh, you know, a, a Christian um, organization called Christian Mission. And they would go into uh, the the bars. And here's Catherine Booth going into bars. Why? Because they're doing sex trafficking of young girls. And, th- and she said, I couldn't sit back and know that this is going on. So she would go in there and, and basically, you know, ball out the, uh, the men that were participating in this and she would preach the gospel to them. And, and, um, anyway, uh, so they, they even, uh, 
purchased a girl out of the sex trafficking uh, because they wanted to you know, rescue her. Well, the sex traffickers accused the Booths of being involved in sex trafficking by their own admission. They bought a girl out of it. And so it became this national case. And obviously they were eventually, um, you know, uh, justified. Uh, but it brought the whole thing to attention. And so they pushed and pushed and they finally got the age of consent raised in England to, you know, like 16 years old, where before it was like really low because all the sex traffickers want to keep the, the age of consent low so they can prey upon these young, innocent children. And um, and so that's the Salvation Army. That's how it started. And, and it's still mm-hmm. going on today. And so a lot of the things that we, uh, you know, YMCA, Salvation Army, uh, different organizations, um, you know, mission wise uh, started during this time. And uh, again, that that missionary society that was started, uh, the you know American Commission on Missions started out of that Haystack prayer meeting revival. The missionaries they sent to China caused this huge revival in China, with which millions of people got saved, and not just got saved, they held their faith through the communist persecutions. And so they look back at these missionaries of the Second Great Awakening revival, like we would look back to the Apostle Paul, right? Because this is the first time they heard it. Absolutely. And then Burma, the first missionary uh, to the Far East from America was Adoniram Judson. He and his wife, Nancy, went to Burma, and they ended up um, uh, getting uh, a huge amount of people uh, convert to Christianity, started hospitals, and they used his um, English Burmese dictionary uh like even to this day, they're still using it. Um, and then to Hawaii. So you had um, a couple boys jump on a whaling ship from Hawaii and come to New England when this revival was going on. And so missionaries decided to, to leave New England, go to Hawaii. And um, anyway, fascinating it's stuff. It's all in the extreme. book it called is. Miracles in American History. Yeah, so Miracles in American History by Bill Federer. You can find it at AmericanMinute.com. Um, also some of his other works as well. Bill, thank you as always for stimulating our hearts and minds, reminding us of who we are and where we've been in order that we might be propelled forward to live into our calling in this generation. We really appreciate it. We'll be right back. All right, just a couple of quick reminders here at the end of the hour today. If you want to Join the 21-day fast, Fasting for Revival in America. That website is dayandnight.org. That is uh, that is an effort by Christian Union, which if you're not familiar with them, that's a ministry you would like on our college campuses today. And then also, um, today's the day if you want to join the conference that's taking place in Dallas the first few days of October, October 3 to 5. Um, in terms of uh, bringing not only an end to uh, clergy abuse and leader abuse, sexual abuse in the life of the church, but how to respond to it in the life of your own congregation. That is called Caring Well, and you can find it at erlc.org. All right, we have covered um, a lot in our time together this morning. I want to be sure that I remind you that I am praying for you and invite you to pray for me as we enter into the events of this day as the ambassadors of Jesus Christ deployed into the world that he so loves. Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. 
That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.